Amen. You may be seated. You know, as we were singing that song, in the song you pray, right? In the song you pray to God that God might soften your heart, that that God might do whatever is necessary, that you would be broken and, and come to the end of yourself. And as I was singing that song, I couldn't help but think of all of the times in my life that I have asked the Lord to soften my heart. For much of my life, I've been a hard-hearted man. A man who was not easily brought to tears, a man that was not often moved with compassion. As I sang that song on this new year, it was different for me this time. 2016 was, in practically every way that I can describe, the hardest year of my life. And I found myself this year not finding tears hard to find, but instead hard to hold back. And I've thought often, what does God have to do to soften the heart of a man? So this year, buried people that I never thought that I would bury, preached funerals that I never thought I would preach, faced health and difficulties that I never imagined at 30 that I would face. It's been hard. So all of us, as we sing these words, we have to realize these are not just empty words that we're, we're, we're parroting after John. That if these are sincerely the prayers of our hearts, we better check ourselves and make sure that we are ready to pursue the Lord in faith. That we are ready for the Lord to do whatever is necessary to soften these hardened hearts that we have, to fill us with mercy and grace and compassion. I told Megan this morning, normally I'm not one... I'm not much of a night person, I'm not much of a night owl, I'm more of a morning person, and, uh, and usually on New Year's I'm not one to, to stay up and make sure the New Year comes in, but I told Megan, I, I stayed up last night because I just wanted to make sure that 2016 was going away. You know what I mean? Like, I just wanted to make sure that 2016 was officially put to rest because with the New Year comes new optimism, right? With the New Year comes, comes new hope. Comes, comes new anticipation about what it might hold and how the Lord might move and how it might be different than last year. And so in so many ways, the new year offers to all of us a fresh start. Some of you have gorged yourself over the holidays and yet in the new year you're going to eat right, right? You haven't gotten off of your couch in like six months, but in the new year you're going to run a marathon, right? The new year gives us optimism. It gives us a fresh start. And as we consider the fresh start that the new year gives us, I think this is a good time for us to go back to the cross. For us to go back to the cross and remember how it is that a man gets a new start. Because there are so many of you this morning that are weary and tired. You're, you've been carrying burdens, you've been carrying struggles, you've been carrying hardships, and you're just done. You're undone. This morning, I believe the Lord offers you a fresh start. I believe the Lord offers you a new day. 
I believe the Lord is offering to you this morning to remove from your shoulders the boulders that you've been carrying to put down your burdens and have your record of debt canceled at the tree. Some of you are Christians, and yet you're still buried in guilt. You're still weary trying to live a perfect life and trying to measure up to everybody else's expectations. And again this morning, I call us to come back to the most simplest of truths, yet most profound of truths in the gospel. That the Lord has come and the Lord makes your day new and the Lord makes your life other than what it was. So that you might rest in grace. So you might be set free. From guilt. So would you turn to me to one of the most familiar passages in the Bible in John chapter 3. John chapter 3. I love the gospel of John. John has, uh, to me, among the gospel writers, the most unique way of presenting the word of God. The most unique way of, of articulating himself. Even thinking about the Christmas story, you know, you have Matthew and Luke, and they're giving the description of what happens. And you have John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God in the beginning. You know, like, like John, you're just a different kind of guy, aren't you? You read the, you read the, uh, the epistles of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and you know, you, you know some people t- think linearly, like they think in straight lines, and so they're always talking with logic, and they're kind of building one argument upon the next, right? And so it all is kind of connected. That's kind of how my brain thinks. I'm a, I'm a more linear thinker. But then there are those artsy people, right? There's those music people like John, and they think in circles, right? They, they'll, they'll be over here, and they'll have this idea, and then they come over here, and they talk about this, and they come over here. And then they're going to get back at some point to this idea, and, and it's all just moving in these circles, right? And, and John seems to write like that. You read, the, you read first, second, and third John, and John will leave an idea, go over here, and they come right back to that idea. He's just, he's just talking in circles. I'm almost positive that John was the first worship pastor. I'm almost positive. And so I love reading the gospel of John because it's just fascinating. So let's read the first 18 verses of John, of John chapter 3. Would you stand with me as we prepare to read God's word together? John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these, si- these signs uh, that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless, a man, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I have said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. 
If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. May God bless the preaching and the reading of his inerrant word this morning. You may be seated. So when we come to John chapter 3, we're introduced to a very interesting man named Nicodemus. And in Nicodemus' day, he was an important man. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, the Bible tells us. He was one, that is, that held a very conservative approach to the law of God. He believed that you must adhere strictly to the law of God and follow it clearly and obviously whenever, to every letter of the law. The Pharisees, in fact, would make up brand new laws to try to reinforce and ensure that you were following God's law. So they had God's law, then they had their law. Their life was built on the law. But it tells us not only is Nicodemus a Pharisee, but Nicodemus is a ruler. Most likely this means that Nicodemus is a member of the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish council that ruled over the Jewish people. These were the decision makers, the movers and the shakers. This is essentially the, the Jewish Congress or Parliament that, is, that gathers together to make the major decisions for the people of God. And so Nicodemus is, in every sense of the word, the kind of man that should have a close, intimate connection with God. The kind of man that should be able to tell you what God wants from you and expects from you. The kind of man that spoke with an authority that can only come with a certainty and an assurance in God himself. And yet in the cover of the night... Nicodemus comes and he goes to Jesus. And he essentially says, Jesus, we have seen you do things that we've never seen a man do before. We've heard you talk with an authority and teach and preach with an authority that we've never heard before. <coughs> Everybody's talking, Jesus. Nobody really knows what to make it what you did at the wedding in Cana. Nobody really knows what to do of all the things that we're hearing and I don't know much myself, Jesus, but I know this. You seem to be a man that comes from God. You seem to be a man that knows God. And I think if we read between the lines of what Nicodemus is saying to Jesus, Nicodemus is asking Jesus, how is it that I can know God in the same way that you do? How is it that, that I can have, be able to speak with this authority the way that you do? How is it that I can go in the power of the Lord the way that you do? How is it that I can have the connection with God that you have? And so, we have this competing message that's coming to the forefront. 
What's the difference between Jesus and the Pharisees? What's the difference between Jesus' relationship with the Father and the Pharisees' relationship with God? What's the difference in what Jesus is preaching and that message which the Pharisees are preaching? See, the Pharisees, they essentially preach what every other world religion that I've ever come across preaches. That you need to do good enough. You need to work hard enough. That to have a joyful afterlife is dependent upon the morality of your life and how well you uphold whatever law it is that you ascribe to. That, that if you will just work hard and you will work to balance out your bad with a little bit more good and you'll kind of pursue that together, then when it comes to the end of life and you kind of go on in, that you, if you do, if you've accomplished that, you've been a good man and done good things the way that you're supposed to have done them, then you'll have a good, joyful afterlife. And if I'm honest with you, I think that is an absolutely devastating worldview. A devastating worldview that only accomplishes one of two things. One, you never measure up, you're never good enough, and it constantly beats you down. Constantly, the law is pointing back to you and say, See, I told you you couldn't do it. I told you you weren't good enough for God. I told you you couldn't live up to it. And so you live in the sense of perpetual guilt and of perpetual exhaustion, and you just give up. Or it has the opposite effect. And in your mind, somehow you have accomplished the law, and somehow you have somehow managed to outweigh the bad with the good, and you've built yourself up with this self-righteousness that leads to arrogance and pride. You know what the problem is with that worldview? I, I, think, there, I think the problems are legion, but at least two of them. First of all, what is good? What is good? Who gets to determine what's good and what's not? Every single God seems to have a different definition of good. Every single culture seems to have a, a different definition of good. One culture tells you that it's good for you to pursue your own prosperity. Another culture tells you that you should put your own prosperity aside for the good of others. <coughs> <coughs> One culture tells you that it's good to be tolerant of many different belief systems. Another culture tells you that you should kill anybody that will not ascribe to yours. What is good? Who is right? That if your goal is to be good enough for God, what definition of good, what man's definition are you going to use? What is good? The other problem is, is how good is good enough? How do you know you ever get there? How do you know that you ever measure up? How do you know that you ever actually balance out your bad with your good? Does the bad thoughts that you have count? Do the bad motives you have count? Do the bad, the, the, the good things with, with the wrong, like, is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? <coughs> How good is good enough? How do you know if you've ever actually measured up? Do you know if you were to go and you were to find uh, a Muslim and you were to ask them that question, you know what they would tell you? We can't know. We hope. We think. We're optimistic, but we can't know. Because you can never know how good is good enough. 
So when Jesus comes in and Jesus starts preaching, Jesus takes this worldview and he flips it on its head. He takes this worldview that leads you to pride or despair and he flips it on its lid so that you can see how utterly ridiculous and ungodly it really is. And so as we, as we go through John chapter 3, we're kind of seeing how, how Jesus says you get into the kingdom of God in opposition to the way the Pharisees had believed you get into the kingdom of God. The Pharisees believed you followed the law of Moses. Jesus is going to give us a completely different understanding. What I want you to notice is how many conditional statements are in our text. <coughs> how, many different, how many different conditional statements. We see one in John 3.3. 3. He says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Then in verse 5, it says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Then in verse 15, he says, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Verse 16, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then in verse 18, he says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. You see, when we come in, we take into view the kingdom of God, what we're able to see is that entrance into the kingdom is exclusive. Entrance into the kingdom of God is in fact conditional. It is not a universally applied reality for all of man, no matter what the heretics say. <coughs> it is not the question of, of everybody's going to, God's just going to somehow overlook all of our sin and not worry about it. No. Jesus is clear in Matthew chapter 7 that the path is narrow and the way is hard that leads to eternal life. And only a few will find it. A few. A few who meet the conditions that we find here in John chapter 3. You'll notice that there's some unlesses and then there's some believes, right? So let's look at the unlesses first. In verse 3 he says, unless one is born again, he cannot inherit the kingdom of God. <coughs> Man, struggling up here with this cough, huh? Come on, 2017, I'm optimistic. He says, unless one is born again, he cannot come into the kingdom of God. What does that mean? I really love uh, Nicodemus' response to this. Nicodemus, Jesus says, you must be born again if you're going to come into the kingdom. And I can just imagine, Nicodemus is like, I'm here under threat of my own reputation. My own standing in the Sanhedrin. I've come under the quiet of dark, snuck all the way across town to come talk to you. And now you tell me I must be born again? Well, thank you for that word, brother. I don't even know what that means. And so Nicodemus basically looks back at Jesus and says, Jesus, if I've got to re-enter the womb of my mother and be birthed again, like you can't even afford those psychiatric bills. Like, I'm going to need counseling that is beyond any man of God I've ever known if, that, if that's the story of what's going to have to go down here. So what is Jesus talking about? When he says that we must be born again, if we're going to have this new life, if we're going to be able to enjoy eternal life with God, what is he talking about? See, all of us are born physically alive but spiritually dead. Ephesians 2.1 says that we are dead in our trespasses. And what can dead people to fix their deadness? Nothing. 
Dead people can't fix themselves. Dead people are powerless. Dead people have no ability to overcome their condition. That's the very definition of what it means to be dead. And so it says that we are dead because of our sin. We are dead because of our trespasses. So Jesus is saying, if we're going to overcome that, if we're not going to be dead, if we're going to enjoy spiritual life and eternal life, we had best be born again. We had best be born again, not being spiritually dead, but being spiritually alive, spiritually awakened. You see, I think this gets to the question that so much of our society has. And I think this gets to a question that every Christian needs to be armed to answer. Our society is coming to us now, and they are saying that this sin is okay because you were born that way. Right? That that I may be a man, and I may be attracted to another man, but that can't be wrong because I was born that way. And if God built me that way, and designed me that way, and engineered me that way, then it can't be wrong. You have teenagers, and you know what they they ask now? Well, God built me to want sex. God built me to desire it. God built me with these physical appetites and physical inclinations. So, So if God gave me those things, how can they be? I was born this way. It can't be wrong. But what Jesus would tell you is that, yes, you were born that way, but you were also born a sinner, spiritually dead. You see, I was born a liar, a grade A liar, top-notch liar, tell you a lie to your face and convince you that it was the truth. But being a liar is not okay because I was born that way. No, that is why I must be born again. That's why I must experience a new birth. A birth in which I am not spiritually dead, but spiritually awakened. A a birth in which I am not enslaved to sin, but instead am under the control of the Spirit. A birth in which I have been made totally and utterly new in Christ Jesus. You see, all of us, a lot of the conversation I hear with Christians, when we hear the, the born this way argument, we intuitively know that it's wrong, and we get mad, and we beat our chest, but then at the end of the day, we really don't know how to respond to it. What if we could just tell them, look, I was born that way too. And that's why I had to be born again. That's why I had to be born a second time. Church, we better be able to answer that question in our culture. We better be able to answer that question in our society. You were born in a way that you cannot be right with God. And so Jesus says that we must be born again, made alive to the things of God so that we can love them and cherish them and worship Him and be fr- and enjoy a friendship with God. But how does that happen? I think that gets to the second unless that we have. He says, unless you are born of water and of spirit, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That you must be born of water and spirit. And I can imagine that Nicodemus having asked his clarifying questions. Okay, well that clears it up. Thank you Jesus. Now I understand. Now obviously I've got to be born again and I've got to be born of water and spirit. Done. Let's just do that and get on, go to Cracker Barrel and enjoy some biscuits. Right? What does that mean? I think this is an allusion back to what we talked about during Advent when we looked at Ezekiel chapter 36. This is pointing us back. And do you remember what Ezekiel 36 is talking about? It's talking about the new covenant, right? 
So when it's talking about we must be born of water, it's talking about that ritual washing that priests would do to purify themselves. It's, it's talking about that as they would go and prepare for the day of atonement, washing themselves, that they might be clean before God. So what Jesus is saying is that you must be washed clean. All of the sin in your heart and all of the sin in your life, all those lies that you've told, all those lustful thoughts that you've had, the adultery that you've committed, the adultery that you've wanted to commit, the way that you've cheated and cut corners, the laziness that you have, the slothfulness that you have. How many days, just in a single day, do you not live up to the greatest commandment? How many minutes of your day can you honestly say, in that minute, I am loving the Lord my God with all of my heart, soul, strength, and mind? Every one of those offenses are stacked up in a record of debt against you. And what Jesus is saying is that you, if you're going to have eternal life, if you're going to be born again, if you're going to be made spiritually alive, you better be washed clean of that debt. You better have that record of wrongs that is accusing you and is sure to convict you. You better have that wiped away. Remember what we said in Ezekiel 36, what was always the problem of the people of God when it came to the law of God? They're incapable of fulfilling it. Incapable. It wasn't just that they were unfaithful, it was that they were incapable of faithfulness. And so what does he say in Ezekiel 36? He says, I'm going to come through the Spirit, and I'm going to fill you with the Spirit, and I'm going to write my law on your heart, and I'm going to make you faithful. How is it that you must be born again? The Spirit of God must take residence in your life and regenerate your heart and give you a new heart so that you are capable of obeying God, capable of being right with God, capable of realizing your sin and your deadness in that sin. Because what can dead people do to fix themselves? Nothing. The Spirit of God has to awaken you to that reality. The Spirit of God has to draw you to the Father, it says in John chapter 6. The Spirit of God has to do that. Well, when we look at the unless clauses here, when we look at the unless conditions here, what can we say about those? Those are things that only God can do, right? When we look at the unlesses of John chapter 3, we have to look at those and realize that we are incapable of rebirthing ourselves. We are incapable of, making, of, of allowing ourselves or of causing ourselves to be born again. Only God can do that. We look in being born of spirit and water. What power does a man have to wash his own soul? What power does man have to cleanse himself of his own sin? What power does man have to cancel out his own offense and treachery against God? None. Only God can wash a man's soul. What power does man have to be regenerate in the spirit? What power does man have to regenerate himself and to desire God for himself and to hunger and thirst for righteousness for himself and to be convict, convict himself of his sins and to allow himself to live in obedience and righteousness? What power does a man have? No power at all. God must do that. But as much as we see the sovereignty of God and the work of God and the necessity of God in our salvation, it is not without our responsibility. In John chapter 3, we see these things working in concert with one another. 
As we consider the conditional statements of, of John 3, we see the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man coming together to work in concert with one another. That, that once God convicts you of your sins, you must repent of them. Once God awakens you to spiritual truth, you must decide on Christ. Once God draws you to the Father, you must love the Father. Let's look at those belief statements now. He says in verse 15, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Y'all, that's simple, that's powerful. Whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. It's theirs. It's theirs. It's been secured. It's already offered to them. If they believe, if they trust in Christ, they have eternal life. The word believe here, it, it, it can mean to, uh, to trust or to entrust, or it can mean to be fully convinced of something. And here, here's what I think he's saying. That when you get to the place in your life, through the work of the Spirit and the power of the gospel, you come to the place in your life in which you are fully convinced that you are, you are incapable of saving yourself. And you're incapable of washing your own soul clean. And you're incapable of making yourself right before God. And at the same time, are fully convinced that Christ Jesus offers you the only hope in the cross, canceling out your debt on the tree, that you might become righteous. When you become fully convinced of those two realities, so convinced that you entrust your life to Christ, you entrust your life saying, Jesus, whatever you want me to do, I will do. Wherever you want me to go, I will go. Whoever you want me to be, I will be. However you want me to live, I will live. When you become that convinced that Jesus Christ offers you that hope, that's the moment in which you have eternal life. That's when you come to the realization in which you are brought from enemy of God to friend of God. That's the moment in which all of life has been building and spiraling, attaching debt after debt. And you get to that moment, and what do you get? You get a divine, supernatural reset. All of it's washed clean. It's a new start. It's a fresh start. It's all of the sins of 2016 washed away. All of the sins of the last 30 years, in fact, washed away. It's, in fact, having the future and the sins that are to come washed away before they've ever, been ever even happened. It's submitting yourself, fully trusting in the Lord, that the Lord is sufficient and sovereign and good and is completely worth the devotion of your life. And so it's saying, Christ Jesus, I believe in you. Take my life and do as you wish. that moment, you pass through the judgment, John will say in chapter 5. You pass from death into life, already having walked through the judgment, having applied to you the righteousness of Christ. But there's a flip side too, right? There's a flip side. Verse 18. Verse 18 says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but... Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. When we come and we realize that our salvation before God 
that there's a conditional offer of the kingdom to us. It's terrifying, isn't it? That there is a way that I can be. There is, there are, there is something that can be true of me that will n- disallow me to be right with God. That will disallow me to know eternal life. And if I don't know eternal life with God, I will know eternal condemnation apart from God. It's terrifying. And yet at the same time, it is glorious. And it is glorious because there should be no condition in which man can be right with God. There should be no condition in which a righteous God can in justice and holiness look down at a wicked sinner guilty of cosmic treason and pardon him, forgive him, and make him righteous and still be just. And yet God has made it so. God has made it so. And why has God made it so? Not because there's something good in you or something good in me. Not because I'm important in the scheme of the cosmos. Not because God was lacking and needed me. God did it because chapter 3 verse 16 says he loved me. He loved the world. He did it not because there was something good in me, but because there was so much good in him. Compelled by his own love, compelled by his own goodness, he gives me this offer that if I will believe, if I will come after him, no matter what I've done, I am his. Maybe the best word in this whole passage is the word whoever. Whoever. Whoever believes in me. Whoever is born again, whoever is born of the Spirit and of the water, whoever passes through me and repents others, whoever, Jesus is the Savior of the whoever's. It does not matter if you were born in Alabama or Iraq. It does not matter if you are South American or South African or Canadian. It does not matter if your dad was a saint or your dad was a drunk. It does not matter what kind of drugs you've done, what kind of lies you've told, what kind of tests you've cheated on. It does not matter who you've slept with, who you haven't. It doesn't matter what people think of you, how they judge you, good or bad. It does not matter matter whoever comes to the Lord whoever repents of their sin whoever believes in Christ is set free made clean made right with God given the divine reset having the the record of their debt washed away I preached this in Africa and I was in this tent, and I'm preaching. And in that tent, there are children whose parents have died of HIV. And there's kids that are, that are there who, who, you know, did this race thing with us. And, they're run, and they just came there because the white guy was running, and they just chased after him. 
And there's, there, there are people there that they came just wanting to get rich, and they're, they're there for that reason. And then there's, there's people that are there, and man, they've, they've, they've worshipped this God and this God and this God, so they're going to hear about this one too and see what the story is. And man, I remember looking at them and preaching and saying, but my God is the Savior of the whoevers. It does not matter that you don't have money. It does not matter that you don't have a mom or a dad or a house. It does not matter. Christ Jesus will set you free. And tears pouring down their face if for just a second that truth would resonate in your heart truly if for just a second that truth would resonate and would come to bear in your heart truly you would not be able to contain your praise maybe you're lost this morning maybe you've never surrendered your life to Christ if that truth would ever come to bear in your heart I promise you you couldn't stay in your seat this morning You couldn't keep living your life the way that you've been living it. You couldn't keep trying to do things the way that you know to do them. You couldn't. For the Christian that's here, if if that's compelled in guilt and filled with guilt and overrun, that they're not measuring up to God, if the truth that God has come to save whoever and could not love you more or less because his love for you is perfect, so perfect that it compelled him to send his son, like if that truth would resonate in you, you would be set free. Free of your guilt this morning. Brothers and sisters, as we start this new year, would you come with me to the cross? Would you come with me to the cross to be reset again? Would you come with me to the cross to have your guilt removed and lifted again? For those of you who have come and you sat in church services just like this, time after time, completely unmoved by what you've heard about Jesus, this morning, would you turn over your life and believe and realize that whoever you are, wherever you're from, whatever your story is, Christ Jesus sets you free. This morning, would you come? Would you talk to one of our pastors this morning? Let us go to the Lord in prayer together.